and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which tells the stories behind the food, linking what we eat to who we are. And this week, we're talking food identity, which regular listeners will know is my favourite subject. Communist ideology came into Afghanistan. In response to that, there was this really fanatical sense of Islam that started to emerge, which was totally new for Afghanistan. Afghanistan's version of Islam and a a reason why it was so attractive to people all throughout the 60s and 70s was it was a very gentle form of a philosophical Islam. Dakani Ayubi's book, Pawana, tells the story of her family's memories and recipes from her native Afghanistan, set against a sweeping history of a country ravaged by power plays and unwelcome international interference. You can find out how to access her recipes and the book at ckbk.com, the Spotify of cookbooks at the end of the show. But come with me now to what Afghanistan once was. For me as a child, an impossibly exotic land of hippies and Afghan coats, poetry and music, which almost overnight was thrust back into the dark ages by a Soviet takeover. Dakani, although only seven months old when her family escaped, tells a story. The Afghanistan you're conjuring that in the Western perception formed part of the hippie trail and it was where people kind of went on these tremendous adventures on land right through to India um, is an Afghanistan that for my parents who were born in Afghanistan and who kind of spent their adolescence and their adult years throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s in Afghanistan, it was the golden era, the golden age that they grew up in. And you know, obviously I was, everything I kind of know about that time is through reading and through what my parents have told me. But, you know, it was very much a time when Afghanistan was experiencing um, or reaping the rewards of a few decades of its own kind of intellectual flourishing. Um, People were the 1964 constitution in the country was kind of setting it on this um, trend towards democratisation. Uh, it opened up um, education in the country. It was about kind of engendering greater um, women's rights and gender equality more generally. So, And it was a time of peace. It was a, a monarchic reign of about 40 years of the King's Eyed Shah, which is when my mum and dad kind of grew up. And, you know, they kind of recount stories of peace, stability and prosperity. And not only that, like just a flourishing, a sense of cultural flourishing, a time of like picnics um, in this beautiful landscape, like kind of this backdrop of the Hindu Kush mountains and this lush kind of green valleys and fertile plains where, you know, they would travel and they would go from one part of the country to another on day trips and um, have picnics along the way. And, and, you know, they had houses in the city in Kabul um, where they would spend some summers and then winters they would spend in like their houses in the countryside and you know it was an Afghanistan that was kind of flourishing off the back of um, an era of this kind of nation building and cultural build-up that happened in the image of its own people. Afghanistan has this tremendous history of lots of different civilizations that have either passed through or stayed there for centuries and kind of left this imprint, this aura on the nation. So you've got this 
epic, beautiful landscape that obviously attracted so many people from all over the world, um, matched with this very rich, complex, interwoven culture that really brings together so many elements um, from all over the world in one place. But that was also really hospitable, that wanted to invite these people, these hippies, these people from all over the world to come in. It wasn't one of these countries that said closed you know we see it as a very hostile place now mm-hmm. and you'll tell us why mm-hmm. but hospitality was at the was at the core of its, of its soul wasn't it yeah absolutely so um afghanistan has a long history of hospitality and it's something that is obviously the crux of what myself and my family do to this day in restaurants and just the kind of all the rituals and traditions that surround cuisine it's not just about the food there's a lot of kind of um an essence of um invitation of honoring your guests of treating people like you know welcome into your home into your space that is really wound up in the food and that's what you're describing and you know that has a millennia long history of being at the center of these ancient silk roads where there were always people traveling through and they were always welcome you know if they came in peace and goodwill they were always welcome and people you know there were so many exchanges of food, um, inviting people in, but also exchanges of ideas and philosophies and religions. And, you know, it's all part of the philosophical and intellectual history of the space that is bound into that culture of hospitality that is now expressed and very much a part of our food as well. And we'll find out where those influences kind of find their way into the kitchen in your four Mm. food moments in a minute. But let's just kind of fast forward what happened by the time you Mm -hmm. left as a seven month old baby with your family yeah so that the 1970s were a pivotal time in Afghanistan um so the country basically was starting to have some sort of a split in its identity because there was this influence of communism that was kind of coming into the country from um, the USSR, which it shared a, shares a border with, you know, to its north. And um, people in Afghanistan, you know, kind of rightly wanted change. They wanted kind of an end to monarchy. And um, people had studied and travelled abroad by this point and had seen, you know, how other countries seemed to be progressing alongside industrial revolutions and that kind of thing. And people wanted that moment of revolution and change to be happening in Afghanistan. And, you know, it kind of happened in a way that ended up being very traumatic for the country because the people that were kind of at the head of these political movements at the time took on that um, that Marxist-Leninist ideology, which seemed, seemed very revolutionary, but was actually quite at odds with the majority of the people's um, traditions and beliefs, and it was just too much of a split from who what these kind of deeper-seated identities were, which were very much based on kinship and family and, and those kinds of traditions. And uh, so the 1970, in 1979, when the Soviet government came into Afghanistan, it was really the beginning of the end. You know, I am um, in my research for the book. I was so lucky to kind of come across these beautiful, brilliant essays that my mum's cousin wrote, who was um, a very learned kind of person, an academic, a polyglot, a writer, a philosopher. And he talks about what happened to Afghanistan in this period with such lucidity that I felt like I was there. And he kind of carves out 
but the years prior to this actual um, kind of occupation of Afghanistan by the um, Soviet government, the own people were kind of losing their own um, essence and their own aura because of all these different competing interests mm. during the Cold War. I mean, the Americans were doing it as well. Exactly. So these kind of Cold War tensions were playing out on Afghan soil. And unfortunately for the country, it just really took a, it was a great departure from who the people were and what they could accept and how they could live. And so from the um, time that the um, Soviets were in there, it was really a a time of deep trauma for Afghanistan. And I don't think it's recovered from that kind of schism um, to this day. Uh, It was a time when over half of the population was um, in exile, displaced either within the country or externally. And that terrible thing happened to Afghanistan where so many people left the people with the political knowledge, the education, that kind of thing, to have been able to rebuild a country after conflict. They all left during the 70s and 80s, and my family was one of them, you know, because it was either stay and most likely, you know, face some really terrible consequences, life or death consequences, or leave and try to build a life for your family. And my parents were in a situation where they had four young children and uh, when it started to feel really dangerous by the mid-80s and there was just a, a kind of a heightened sense of paranoia and uh, people were missing and there were all sorts of terrible events mm. like kind of these mass killings and that kind of thing that were happening under the government's mm. watch, um, lots of people had to leave uh, and really that was and the And your father the was, was threatened. That's right. He was threatened. So if you didn't kind of purport um, your um, allegiance to communist ideology by denouncing your own faith and um, kind of saying, yes, I'm, I'm part of this kind of communist ideology, you were a target. And you, at first you were blacklisted in really subtle ways, which is what happened to my dad, where, you know, he was fired from his job. And that's kind of like an indirect hint that you've been targeted, you're blacklisted, you can't go about your life anymore. And um, it was around that time that uh, my family decided we had to leave. But from your parents' point of view, you mean you're both your parents have been brought up in a much more sort of um, liberal uh, era. And with a family of girls, four girls at that time, mm-hmm. you were the youngest. Your fifth yeah. sister was born in Australia. They That's must right. have been looking at a, at a country where women's rights had just been taken away. I mean, I remember being very young and, and watching women who I could see in my own world who looked like us being blocked from going to That's school, right. having no access to education, jobs. Yeah, absolutely. In overnight, it seemed. It was terrifying. Yeah. It was, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're right, because it was almost like this great reversal was happening. Um, People from my grandmother's era who um, grew up in the 40s and the 50s, they were women who knew what it was to have their rights and who were fighting for those um, rights the same time that women all over the world were fighting for universal suffrage and all of these kinds of things and you know Afghanistan and the women there knew about these things and they were and they had been you know you're right they were at the beginning of this trajectory of um going to university and um, going to co-ed schools and that kind of thing and really having the right to vote and all of this kind of thing and um, it all was a great reversal that happened alongside the chaos of the violence of occupation mm. and war. And really what happened when communist ideology came into Afghanistan, 
in response to that, there was this really fanatical sense of Islam that started to emerge, which was totally new for Afghanistan. Afghanistan's version of Islam and a a reason why it was so attractive to people all throughout the 60s and 70s was it was a very gentle form of a philosophical Islam. It was always tempered with these Sufi kind of ideologies. There's a long tradition of Sufism in the region, a real spirituality that kind of tempered any dogma. Um, And there was a balance you know, people were Muslim and they adhered to their faith, but it was all done in balance yeah. with um, lots of other elements of life. Yeah. <laughs> and um, all of that was just kind of undone um, because of the fanaticism and the dogmatic ideologies that kind of crept into the country. Well, it didn't creep um, into the country, the let's be clear. You know, they were radicalised mm. by the Soviet Union, weren't they? There was a, an active radicalization process to destabilise the area so that there could be a power vacuum that the Soviets could just hop into and the Americans. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. That's right. And, you know, just that very tragic thing happened to Afghanistan where it just became um, used by all sorts, uh, by both sides of the conflict because the Americans had a vested interest in playing out that Cold War far from home on a totally different kind of landscape and canvas and it was Afghanistan and basically they... um, The whole world more or less funded the Mujahideen, which eventually evolved into the Talebs, the Taliban and that kind of thing. And they were awash with weapons and money that came in from all over the world because the world was trying to fight communism and they were just doing it. (laughs) And had been for a very long time. I mean, let's not not let the British off the hook here. Um, You talk about how the British referred to Afghanistan in the early 1900s and before as the great game. Yeah, that's right. You know, that horrible colonial idea of, mm-hmm. you know, just let's take over a country and play with it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, back in the 1800s, at the height of British Empire, yeah, Afghanistan was not spared from that because it shared a border with India and India was Britain's largest prize. And then yeah. you had Tsarist Russia, who was also kind of making an, an kind of emerging as a superpower or a superpower itself. And for the people wedged in between in Afghanistan, it was violence and trauma again. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so you did flee. You Mm -hmm. managed amazingly to get out with your family intact. Mm -hmm. Most people didn't. And you were able through a series of very fortunate uh, incidents to get to Australia and to Adelaide. So fast forward to where you are now, to Pawana, the the family restaurant. I mean, what a story. Tell us about the restaurant and then we'll go into some Mm. of the four food moments which you cook there and where, where you bring those recipes and stories actually into your daily life. By the time my family had become um, migrants to Australia, uh, you know, we were living out this real duality that becomes part of, I think, nearly every migrant story, um, certainly in that first generation where it's a lived experience of leaving a country behind, which was, you know, managing this kind of emotions of loss and hope, (laughs) of kind of sorrow and joy, you know, because we did escape and we did find peace and stability and safety and had a chance to start again. But, you know, that was kind of always and to this day closely linked to everything that has been lost. But from that, you know, we managed to forge something very life-giving for us. 
um, as people far from home, as a diaspora community here in Australia now, you know, food took on new meaning. Food was about this connection to um, our heritage, our ancestry, uh, and um, to memories for my parents, I think. You know, memories and that connection that those memories have and how they play out through food became even more poignant because we were so far from our ancestral lands. So food was just this core part of our lives as children growing up and as a family, and it was how we stayed connected to who we were. And just naturally that evolved into not many people in um, Australia having experienced very kind of this traditional Afghan food, these recipes that my mother, you know, she was such a, she loved cooking and she had been passed down these traditional Afghan recipes and they formed a huge part of how she loved to express herself. Uh, and so people kind of would taste this food and we're like, wow, this is amazing. So then we just thought, you know, after kind of getting that response from people that we would just try to open a restaurant just really small and see you know how people would react and if people like the food and just really slowly and organically from that experience of a small kind of restaurant um we just by word of mouth so many more people started to um come in and experience afghan food and before we knew it um (laughs) we had expanded into like next door and that kind of thing and had had this really great privilege of this joyous journey of being able to share something of our history in a really meaningful way in our community, our new community here in Adelaide in Australia. Uh, And really, it's just been a way to be able to shift the kind of image of Afghanistan that now after the past kind of three, four decades of ongoing violence is an image that is shrouded in all sorts of stereotypes. But, you know, when people have this food that is kind of so rich and beautiful and so familiar in so many ways to them, it's just opened up uh, this whole kind of space for new conversations around Afghanistan through the food. And, you know, America and Australia, you're in in good company. You know, Mm. it's all about the new world. I wrote a book about Australia, actually, back Mm. in the 90s, 98, I think it was. And it was all about that. It was about people bringing their... It was why Australia is is the best cuisine in the world, because it is a a very interesting mix of these stories that come from the old country, from Italy in the 1950s, Greece Mm. in the 1960s, Mm. the Vietnam boat people in the 1970s, and so it goes on. So, you know, there's a lot of people starting from scratch, there's a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, understanding and interest in who people are. It's a very diverse culture, which makes it a really fabulous, evolving cuisine, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you're right. In Australia, we're so lucky to kind of have all these communities side by side. And I think what they carry with them through that expression that they offer now with food is, you know, not just the food, but this real kind of emotional connection to the food as well, because of everything it symbolizes. Uh, And then that's expressed and passed on in kind of deeper ways, I think. I think that you, you know, when you talk about the deeper ways, you you quote Khalil Gibran in one of mm. your long essays on on the history of Afghanistan, and he talks about the reconciling of mm. grief and joy, and that's what is so extraordinary about these stories of food from the old country. I can't get enough of them. I think they're absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Your first food moment really kind of sums that up for me. Yeah. It's char masala. It's like garam masala. It's the mix of spice spices that forms the core that's right of of afghan food tell us about it 
I chose the char masala because I think it symbolizes the rich histories of exchange that underpin Afghan cuisine, which is, I think, one of the elements of Afghan food that makes it so special and so kind of palatable to so many different people from here in Australia, we have people from all over the world living side by side. And so many people kind of can relate to Afghan food, whether they're from kind of Asian countries or Mediterranean countries or Indian, for example. And it's because I kind of mentioned it earlier, sitting at the heart of Central Asia, at the um, at the centre of the crossroads of the ancient Silk Roads, so many different cultures um, traded through or stayed there in Afghanistan and influenced the cuisine with these kind of multiple ingredients and recipes and and the spices of course are part of that story um, so you know spices that came in through the spice islands and india and and they stayed in Afghanistan. The influence of those spices stayed and they're infused through the food. So the char masala, it literally translated, it means four spices, but it's basically like a mix of spices that every household or region will have its own specialities of what they want, what they like those spices to be their own tastes. Um, and in the recipe book, um, I put a blend that we use, um, you know, in our kitchens at home and at the restaurants. And it's kind of like a blend of warm spices. Afghans use lots of different spices, things like cardamom, cumin, cinnamon, turmeric, coriander, all, all sorts of spices, really, bay leaves. But we use it really quite lightly. Um, so you get a hint of all these different spices, but none of them are too overpowering. So the recipe that we have in the book um, just kind of shares, you know, the proportions of how you might blend those spices together. They're, they're kind of toasted, they're roasted first so that you kind of, when they're then ground together, you really release this rich aroma and these layered smoky kind of tastes when you use it in the food. And those spice blends are then used in all sorts of things, things like our rice dishes, our stew-based dishes, our sauces, meats, that kind of thing. And that smell when they're toasting mm. in the kitchens. For your parents who are still alive, your mum's doing a lot of your promotional stuff. I saw yeah. her on the Harvard Bookstore <laughs> on YouTube. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you've lived in Australia mm. for what, 30 years now? Yes, yeah, over 30. <laughs> but uh, it must every single time take her back to where it all comes from and her yeah, roots. And, you're, you know, it is the story of your family mm. that goes through this book, isn't it? It's not just a history of Afghanistan. It's mm. the story of your grandmother and your great-grandmother right. and all the people who've come before you. That's right. Um, let's go on to your second food mm. moment and think about that. Um, the Balani um pan-fried stuffed flatbreads again something mm -hmm. you'll find in the whole of that area yeah yeah again so it kind of captures that um fusion and that inter entwinement that underpins afghan cuisine um bolanis are these kind of um rolled out um dough you roll out the dough you make the dough it's just a really simple dough but it's so delicious and you stuff it with really you can be creative with this which is why i like this dish but traditionally afghans stuff it with seasonal fillings, things like an Afghan leek called gandana or um, meat fillings, which could be like a ground lamb mince filling or a chicken, something like that. Always like really beautifully spiced and seasoned and cooked before you use it as a filling. Uh, and really the reason I chose this as one of my food moments is because for me as an adult looking back, the reason food made such a huge part imprint on me growing up um, is because Afghan food is about the rituals that precede the eating as well as the actual eating. And yeah. 
so much of what we make is made communally and, you know, with your family, with your friends. And the balani, you know, you would all kind of get together, make the dough, somebody would make the fillings, and then it would come time to kind of roll out the dough and there'd be two or three people kind of rolling out the um, the dough and then other people filling them and then somebody else kind of frying them up. And then we'd, so we'd eat them hot off a skillet and you would always mm. dip them into like a sauce, like a herb chutney that we make or we use a lot of yogurt dairy in our food it's like a yogurt dip or something like that and so the balani embodies for me this it captures the totality of the spirit of afghan cuisine which is a real gregarian gregariousness and that real sort of sense of um joy and hospitality that is a part of afghan cuisine yeah how wonderful to be able to have a restaurant where you can open the door and share this with people yeah absolutely. i mean you know in your small family when the thing about refugees is that you know often you team up with a a community of refugees Mm in in a in a place Mm -hmm. in a new place and you build that whole world of sharing food together but actually to in a truly australian way that (laughs) new country kind of culture open the doors and have people from all sorts of different cultures sharing your food how wonderful is Is that what happens yeah absolutely you know we get people who have who have say of an older generation and maybe from similar cultures to ours from like india or other parts of the subcontinent and you know they they have the food and they tell stories of you know so many times i've seen people tear up and just say how much it reminds them of their childhood their memories their kind of ancestral connections to home and you have people who are totally new to the food and who tear up for different reasons of just how much they didn't know that this is what afghan cuisine could offer and you know kind of just really prying open that door even just a little bit to have like this deeper understanding and that's really been a massive part of what happens when people come through our doors yeah absolutely it's about the survival of a culture actually and i think that that's what you Mm. really are trying to do with poana you you quote edward saeed saying that Mm -hmm. uh, survival is about connections but then you go on to 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 quote t.s Eliot: the echoes that inhabit the garden Mm-hmm. And and it's like the ghosts. You it's like the ghosts of your pre childhood memories. The, mm. the ghosts of your mm. family memories have to inhabit that garden in order for those connections to actually exist. And and I think that mm-hmm. your third food moment, rice, really mm. encapsulates everything that you write about. You know, it is absolutely as you say inseparable from identity and politics. But it's also mm-hmm. to do with your rich childhood memories for you and your mm. sisters. Um, mm. Is that why you chose that one? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the echoes in the garden, um, there is this connection to time in uh, a culture, a very old culture that is Afghan culture, and you don't see yourself as just yourself in this moment. You are who you are because of the layer upon layer upon layer of people and moments and histories preceding you. And when I set out to write this book, that was something that was really at the forefront of my mind and it came to in- inhabit almost the framing of the book because I kind of am, am subconsciously and consciously aware because of my kind of these cultural um, elements of, um, of who I am that, you know, I am who I am in this moment because of everything that precedes me. And I very much wanted the spirit of all of those things to be a part of this writing and this book. And the I, I chose the rice because 
Rice forms a very big part of Afghan cuisine, where are a rice culture. Um, it is a part of my own ancestral history as well. My grandfather had lands that grew really remarkable, beautiful rice that was then, you know, we would they would keep some for the family in these massive kind of clay pots to keep it dry and to help it age because rice actually um, becomes a lot better with age, like wines and cheeses and that kind of thing. And he would also kind of export it around the country. And it was known because of where it was grown as well, this really beautiful kind of landscape in Lavman, which was just the perfect temperature and climate conditions for this rice to grow. Um, and so we are a rice culture. And what that meant practically in terms of my childhood and how I grew up and the memories I have is there were always giant sacks of rice at home. <laughs> You know, and rice, almost every meal we would have rice with it. And rice for Afghans is not necessarily this simple thing. We have this process of, it's kind of like five-step intricate process of the way we make our rices. There are different types of rices that you would make. There are palaos, which are really quite separate and elongated grains. And to get to those really long grains, you start by boiling and then you spice and bake. And then we kind of put all these different toppings on our rice. So they're aesthetically beautiful as well when they're presented on a table. And then we have like short grain, stickier rices, that kind of thing that are really quite nourishing in winter. Um, so rice forms the centerpiece of Afghan cuisine. Um, there are a lot of memories kind of stored in that rice um, for me as a child and also for those who came before me. Um, and yeah, and I now in the kitchen myself when I cook every day at our kind of small deli, my favorite thing to make is the rice because it's almost like this meditative process and you know when you've done it right because it looks and smells amazing. Yeah. Oh, Gosh, I mean, that just makes me tear up, actually, because it's mm. so full of history, story, uh, slowness, um, mm. uh, acknowledgement, you know, right. really understanding. I mean, your parents must be so thrilled with you for doing this book. <laughs> I, mean, I can't imagine being, yeah. uh, you know, shortlisted for an Andre Simon Award. Mm. And in fact, your fourth food moment. I actually cooked while I was watching the yeah, Andre Simons last week. <laughs> and I was just, you know, smelling it in the, I put it in the oven actually because yeah. I didn't know how long it was going to go on. And it was amazing. But I could smell this gorgeous oh, nice. eggplant yeah. aubergine dish coming coming through. But just before we talk, talk about mm. that particular banjan barani, tell us about how your parents are responding to the success of this. <laughs> um, it's actually really lovely. Um, I feel like, the process of writing the book brought me a lot closer to my parents for the first time. I, you know, we had a reason to sit down and talk about this history moment by moment. And it was really emotional. And I realized through the process what kind of valuable information and what knowledge they were imparting. And I had this moment where I realized, you know, my parents' generation are the last Afghans to remember Afghanistan during the, its past kind of era of peace, prosperity, and where they thought that their futures were there and that their futures were kind of had no no limits. And so I realised in kind of researching and, and asking them about everything we kind of had been through and, and kind of evoking their memories of that time that it was actually a really special thing to do because 
their those memories die out with their generation and um it was the first time i had really engaged with them so deeply on all of these things of course i always knew about you know who i was and where i came from but this gave me so much more depth of what that was and i pieced myself together because i knew them better and so on that level it was really an emotional process bringing it all together and now that the book is out in the world um my parents are just overjoyed, you know. Um, they almost can't believe just how much people are engaging with the book and they feel as though, you know, for us it was always about this act of preservation and sharing, you know, this mm. culture, this identity that was at risk of being scrubbed out for all sorts mm. of kind of reasons, right? And so for them to be able to say, oh, well, here is our book and here's our story, it's it means the world. And so it's just been a very um, emotional and rewarding process for all of us. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful thing to put down family recipes, but to put down a whole culture and nation's heritage uh, through food is, is quite an extraordinary feat. Um, mm. Your mother was very keen that it was the preservation is, is, is very important, that you do things mm-hmm. exactly right. You don't mm-hmm. change the recipes. The recipes um, that we share at the restaurant um, uh, and kind of what brought the idea of this book into life as well was really, you know, a huge part of it was about preserving and, you know, keeping in living cultural memory and expression these old recipes that after, you know, kind of this now huge diaspora community, this exile of culture. My mum had this kind of intuition and foresight that without writing down these old ways, these old traditions, these these kind of ancestral ways of cooking rice and that kind of thing, that this was a knowledge that would be lost after their generation. And so for her, it was really important. And I remember her saying, and I write about it in the book as well, that the reason she wants us to understand our food and to be able to kind of cook and prepare it is because she realized it was basically like this treasure this treasure trove of knowledge and memories and this history to pass down from one generation to the next and I don't think that means to say that food culture can't evolve and that it hasn't Afghanistan you know we talk about how it is about this entwinement of cultures and these different kind of um, cuisines merging together to form what is Afghan um, food culture and cuisine today so it is about this process of kind of melding in different experiences and ingredients and moments throughout our history to create our cuisine but for Afghanistan today, because of everything that's kind of happened to it over the last few decades, at the moment, it really is about saying, hang on a minute, here's the baseline. Here are the old ways, these traditions and memories that we need to remember um, and then build upon as our experiences um, change as well. So, yeah, it was really about preserving that history and being able to share it as widely as possible. Take us through the Banjan mm-hmm. Barani. Um, so the Banjan Barani is an... Uh, eggplant dish which has become um, iconic in Adelaide I would say <laughs> uh, people love it um, it was kind of like the unexpected hero of the menu um, because Afghans um, love kind of putting all sorts of vegetables in like a really rich delicious tomato onion garlic based sauce which forms the sauce base of the banjan barani and then we kind of um 
fry or you can bake whatever you like, the eggplant slices. And then we put that into the sauce and we let it simmer and really infuse with the flavors and the spices of um, the tomatoes, the onion and, and all the kind of flavors that are in the pot. And then when we serve, we're also dairy obsessed. <laughs> so when we serve, we kind of lather it with this garlic um, infused salted yogurt. And we can, you know, you can serve it with fresh herbs or like paprika and dry mint, whatever you like. And um, people just went mad for it. And, you know, we grew up with it. We always loved it, but we kind of didn't expect people to just love this eggplant dish so much. And I think it also has to do with just the textures and how the eggplant yeah. just melts in your mouth. Very umami. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so... Yeah, the Banjan Barani has just done this wonderful thing where everybody just associates the Parwana menu with this eggplant, which is fantastic because it is a beautiful yeah. dish. Parwana means butterfly. Mm. It's about freedom. It's about rebirth. It's mm. about flying. Mm-hmm. But your book is all about being rooted. Mm. Uh, is that the kind of the contradictions, the the duality? Mm. We didn't necessarily choose the name Parwana 10 years ago or 11 years ago when we first opened the restaurant with any kind of like laden meaning like that attached to it at all, you know. In hindsight, you know, I think it's just one of those really wonderful things where you go, yes, you know, it did kind of give this, give us as a family this chance to reconcile, to heal, to kind of contribute something, to metamorphosize and have something to offer, you know. And um, and in the end, we decided Parwana because... It is a beautiful word to hear. It just rolls off the tongue. Um, and also for my parents, it had this nostalgic memory because it was the name of like a kind of um, an institution, a food spot in Afghanistan that they all loved to go to as well um, during that time of like its own kind of golden era and cultural flourishing. So at the beginning, it kind of was because of that, just how beautiful the word was and that kind of memory and nostalgia attached to it. And it was just this really beautiful thing of how a name grows with you and how you grow into your name. And I think that really kind of summarises the experience that we've had as a family with Parwana, the restaurant, and now the book. Thanks for listening to Cooking the Books. You can buy Parwana and any of the books on the show by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. And if you fancy joining up for a curated collection of hundreds of the world's greatest cookbooks with over 87,000 recipes, ckbk.com is offering listeners a 25% discount if you use the code cookingthebooks, all one word, on checkout. And I'll see you next week when we're off to Florence for a slice of torta della nonna with Emiko Davies. 